All right, let's get into it. If you have a Bible with you, turn in, uh, in your Bible to uh, two places, actually, to Mark chapter 12, then stick your finger there, or put a bookmark in it or whatever. You can, you can bookmark it on your Bible phone, too, I, the phone on your Bible or whatever, too. Phone on your Bible. <laughs> start praying for me right now, okay? Just start praying for me. This could go sideways so easily. Uh, anyways, uh, then go to John chapter 5 is where we're going to start. So I'm going to tell you when to go to Mark later on, so if you lose your spot there, that's fine too. We're going to start in John chapter 5. Uh, Jesus, <clears throat> the context for this passage is that Jesus has, uh, he's just healed a guy. Um, there was a guy who was paralyzed. His feet, legs didn't work. And he was at this place called uh, the Pool of Bethesda, which was a pool that it was thought that an angel would come and would stir up the water of the pool. The, the pool would start stirring or bubbling or something. And whoever got down there first to stick their hand in or their limb in or get in the pool somehow, they would be healed. That's what, that's, that was the word on the street. <clears throat> Jesus comes to a guy who's there. He says he's been there for 30 years. Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, and he complains that he's too slow on the jump to get into the pool when the, when the water starts stirring. Uh, Jesus heals the guy. Long story short, Jesus heals the guy. And what he does is he tells the guy, you know, if you're going to be laying around because you're paralyzed your whole life, uh, it's not always the most comfortable to be laying around on stone. So he has a bed. It's not really a feather bed like we have, more like a mat. So Jesus tells him, hey, uh, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so the, the guy gets up and he rolls up his bed and starts going somewhere, and then the Pharisees, the, the religious people, the religious authorities, see this guy carrying a mat, and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that on the Sabbath? And the reason for that was because in the Old Testament, they'd been told, you need to honor the Sabbath day and not do any work on it. Now, the interesting thing about this and so many of the, those other laws is that there's, uh, <laughs> it's just that. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. So what does that count? Like, I know I probably shouldn't go to my nine-to-five job, but should I make a meal for my kids? Should I take a shower? What counts as work? So this was a debate that had gone on for a long time, and the way that they had kind of settled it out is definitely carrying your bed counts as work. So they come to this guy. We don't even know his name. Come to this guy and say, hey, why are you carrying your bed? And he says, well, the dude who healed me told me to carry it. So go talk to him. And they're like, who, who did this to you? You know, and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> Eventually, they, they track Jesus down, and he's talking to them about the Sabbath and, and who he is. And he, he eventually gets into this this monologue uh, that we're going to cut into towards the end of this monologue. It's in chapter five, starting in verse thirty-nine. These are the words of Jesus. He says uh, to the to the uh, to the religious leaders. He says, "You search the scriptures." Because you, think, uh, you, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, uh, all I got is me and all I have is words. And that's not super helpful. So I need you to speak. We all need you to speak. We need you to open our hearts and to pierce them, to penetrate them, to soften them, to melt them, to open ourselves up to what you have to say to us. So often we're not ready for it. We can't receive it. So would you empower us to hear and empower me to speak? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It may surprise you to hear that Jesus hated religion, actually. He was a stark opponent of religion. Almost, Almost every encounter, there's a few exceptions, but almost every encounter that Jesus gets into with somebody who's part of the religious establishment is fraught with either tension or some kind of serious antagonism. Not all of them, but most of them. And one of the reasons why Jesus is a bit antagonistic towards religion is because religion is essentially this. Religion is the way in which we try to make God play our game by our rules. So we actually have a way of kind of capturing him and leveraging him in our own agenda. That's essentially what religion does. You know, if, if you're a Christian, you may have gone through the, uh, these phases Tell me if I'm, if I'm missing something here. You come to some point in your life where you're actually desperate, where you know that you're hopeless. You know that you're a loser. <laughs> you know you can't do it. There's something missing. There's some big gaping hole in you, this gnaw. You're like a, you're like a dog that's out of water and out of breath, you know, tongue hanging out. <laughs> you know, you're desperate. You're vulnerable. You've come to recognize just how little you are. And in that vulnerability, in that, in that place of weakness, you cry out. You find a God who is a rescuer, who's a savior, who cares, who loves you, who wants to fill that hole. Boom, you find Jesus. And then what happens is there is this tendency over time to drift away from that place of vulnerability, of self-understanding, that I'm a loser and I don't deserve any of this. And you start to drift into this place where you start talking the talk. You start walking the walk. And over time, what you start to actually believe is that I'm pretty well put together. And the reason why I'm put together is because I'm doing all this stuff praying, I'm going to Bible studies, I'm reading my Bible, I'm serving, I'm doing whatever. And what you've subtly done is you've traded that vulnerable, needy dependence on God, that truth believing about yourself and who he is, you've traded that in for a system of self-assurance. Now I know I'm okay because I'm in the system, because I'm doing the stuff. And so now God actually can't have anything against me because I'm doing what he says. That's the essence of religion. And and Jesus says, look, 
you don't grab me and pull me into your game and force me to play by your rules. That's not how it works. So this is how it's working here. This is probably what has happened to these guys. It's, it probably, they're like you and I. You know, it's easy to demonize Pharisees as though they're like these evil people. They're all these little, you know, give them little mustaches. They're like little Hitlers running around or something. No, they're not. They're not. They're, they're uh, pious people. They probably had a strong beginning like any of us. But Jesus has a few things against them, right? Let's go back and, and read this really quick. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So he's actually commending them for something, right? Get this. He's, he says, you're searching. It's, a, it's actually a good thing to search. Do you know that? If you're here and you don't know Jesus or you're not familiar with Christianity or religion or anything like that, and you're searching, you're actually in a pretty good place. Because a person who's searching has already recognized there's some kind of lack. There's something missing, and I'm trying to find it. So that's actually a pretty good place to be in. You're searching the scriptures. Second thing is the scriptures. You're searching the scriptures. You're, you're in the right place. You're searching, and you're searching the scriptures. Why? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. So they're actually, they have come to recognize there is a kind of life that I lack. There's something that I don't need, and I think the place where I'll get it is in the scriptures where God has spoken. That's actually commendable. That's actually a good thing. But then he, he, he turns to the thing that, that isn't quite working. He says, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See what he's just done there? He said, okay, you're, you're, you're in the right spot. You've got the proximity, but you've totally missed it. He's actually calling them on their bluff. He's calling them on their hypocrisy. They have dishonesty in spite of that proximity. There's this thing that happens uh, to people, to all of us. I went to, you know, I, I went to seminary. I don't, I don't say this to toot my own horn, but just to tell you where I've been. I went to seminary at an Ivy League school. And I can tell you at those places, people will go around and say, you know, I'm just looking for the truth. I'm just looking for the truth. You know, I'm, I'm out there. I, I want, I'm searching. I want to find the truth. And then it will be interesting what happens when they discover a truth that is unpleasant there's this kind of like backing away. There's this, eh, yeah, I don't know. We all do that. When we're actually seeking something that we really want, like, so here's an example. <laughs> if you said like, oh, I, I really want to get, I, I really want to um, get into shape. I'm really concerned about my health. And then you start digging in, you realize what you got to do in order to achieve that. You're like, oh man, I gotta start exercising more. I gotta stop eating that. Oh, I probably gotta, this is gonna take some time, so I gotta cut out these other things. And you're like, hmm, yeah, maybe I don't really care that much about getting healthy, right? You, you suddenly become honest about it. But they're in this place where they're like, we're looking for the truth, we're looking for eternal life, we're looking in the scriptures, we're trying to find it. And Jesus is saying, you found it, but you're not submitting to it. And that's, that's exactly how it works, right? If, if you were truly, honestly, trying to get into shape and get healthy, if, if that was genuinely your goal and your aim, you would submit to what it takes to doing that, right? 
Um, so he's calling them out on their dishonesty and their insincerity, right? The truth, to seek the truth, to find life, it requires submission to something. And that is something that they lack. Note also, uh, what Jesus is describing is sin. You know, we're in a church. I can talk about sin. I know it's archaic. Well, I mean, you might get mad if I talk about sin, but, and it sounds archaic, but I'm going to. This should be the one place you expect it, right? So sin is what he's describing. Notice how it blinds them, right? You, you can think, I'm genuinely seeking this, but you're not. Sin blinds you to your motives. Sin blinds you to what's really going on deep down inside. The Bible actually talks about this long before Jesus' day. And Jeremiah, who was, who was a prophet at least 500 years before Jesus, he said that the, that the human heart is deceitful above all things and incomprehensible. And that, that word in the Hebrew, that the, the, the human heart is deceitful, it's actually the word that's used for, for someone who trips someone else from behind. That is, your, your heart will actually trip you up. It's deceitful. This is what sin does to us. So first, note their, their, the dishonesty. In, in spite of the proximity, they are so close to the source, and yet they are so far off. You could be coming to church your whole life. You could have been doing this, this thing your entire life and you could be really far off. I hope that's nobody in this room. If you suspect that might be you, I would love to talk to you about that. Notice too, second thing, notice their need for glory. Verse uh, 41, I do not receive glory from people, Jesus says. I don't receive glory from people. I don't need accolades. I don't, I don't, I don't need people to be going, ooh, oh, you're so wonderful. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You know what he's saying? You know what he's saying about that? So it's like saying um, th- this word receive. You will receive certain people and you'll refuse to receive others. Well, what he's talking about is you will receive honorable people who by having them in your uh, in your presence, at your event, at your thing, will actually boost your esteem in the eyes of others. So if you got some celebrity preacher and you know, we get some celebrity preacher in here and get Tim Keller or something like that in here, and yeah, you'll, you'll invite these guys in. Why? Because, because you're gonna get more honor and more glory by receiving them, and you won't, you don't perceive that you will get more honor and more glory if you receive me. He's saying there's something, there's something wrong inside of your heart already. You're, you're not seeing things are right. You're thinking you need glory from here when actually you need it from God. And that's why he says, how can you believe when you're looking for the glory that comes from other people instead of the glory that comes from God? That's another way in which sin deceives us, Right? Sin deceives us in, the, in that, you know, you, you ever wonder why um, powerful people fall? You know, there's this like, oh, when somebody gets like really famous or really powerful, they fall, they get involved in some kind of scandal. They're blind to how they have been transformed by that power. They're blind to, the, to the, their, their need 
for the accolades of others. It's blinding. Sin actually blinds you. We all have this need, don't we? We all have a need for someone to say, you know what, you're good. Your life matters. I'm glad you're here. The world is a better place with you in it. We all have that need. We all want to, want to be affirmed as the unique and irrepeatable person that we are. You know, you show up here, you've shown up here from someone else's doing, by the way. <laughs> because of someone else, you've shown up here. And at some point, you're going to be gone. We're going to be spinning on this rock around the sun for however long, and either Jesus comes back or you're here, but at some point, trap door opens and you're gone. You want to know that that matters. We all want to know that we have mattered. How many human beings have come and gone and nobody remembers them, nobody knows who they are? Do you see why Jesus is saying you're looking for the glory from nobody? Rather than seeking the glory that comes from the only one who will really remember you and say, I've known you and you matter. Even the best of religion, and Judaism was the best of what religion has to offer, by the way. Judaism was the best of religion. Even the best of religion has a tendency to move away, has a, had a, ten, has a tendency to be self-deceptive and move away from that place of vulnerability and honest need before God, a recognition of this is who I am, and that is who God is, and he is merciful to receive me. It's a movement away from that into this self-satisfying, rather, rather smug, like, I got this. And that's why Jesus doesn't like it. It stinks to Jesus, and the aroma that is pleasing to him is precisely that vulnerability. Not that, oh, we got a system. We created a system. And as long as you're following it, by the way, those systems are always advantageous for some people and not advantageous for others. They naturally tend to make some people winners and other people losers. Not so in God's system. We're going to get there in a minute. But notice these things about Jesus. He doesn't like religion, but he is, he is really interested in that honest seeking. Now, turn, turn to Mark, Mark chapter 12. You got your finger there. It should be easy. I cheated and used a marker. But you know what? I knew we were going here, so you got to give me a break. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38. This is at the end of Jesus' life. It's in his last week. He's just gotten in a whole bunch of tangles with um, the religious leaders. So what I was describing there about religion and his antagonism towards it, you can read the earlier parts of like Matthew, or Matthew, Mark 11 and 12 uh, up to this point, and you'll see some of those antagonisms I was talking about. So Jesus is actually, he's at the end of, he's gone through several dialogues that have kind of ended in uh, these, uh, I guess you'd call them stalemates. Nobody has arrested Jesus yet, but nobody's happy with him either. So Jesus comes to the end. And he, he, he's giving them, this is, this is the way I looked at this, I was like, Jesus is giving them a report card. He's like, okay, I'm here, I'm going to tell you guys how the religious establishment is doing. And then he contrasts it with this woman. I'm going to read through the whole thing and we'll go back and unpack it. Verse 38, and in his teaching, he, as Jesus said, beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. <laughs> those, those aren't fighting words, are they? Um, verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury, still Jesus, and, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see the report card? He actually delivers two report cards there, right? There's a report card for the religious leaders and then, and then for this poor widow. So we're just going to go through both of those. Okay, first report card. Religious leaders, big fat red F, right? He's just, no, you guys, you guys have totally missed it. And the way that he does this is he, he, he first kind of slams their desire for deference. And that's what I've been talking about essentially in John chapter 5, right? He's, he's kind of slamming them for saying like, look, you're looking for deference from other people. You're, you're just wanting other people to think highly of you. You're, you're looking for their esteem. And of course, he says it here in, in different language, right? Like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and, and to have the best seats at synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. This is like, so the, the long robes thing, scribes would, would wear a particular kind of, well, they would wear, try and wear white, uh, to distinguish themselves from everyone else who wore colors. Also, white is a sign of purity. It's very difficult to clean. So they would try and distinguish, like their, their clothing was a way of distinguishing themselves. And then all, all this other stuff about like the, the greetings in the marketplaces and the, and the high seats, that's, that has to do with the kind of deference that comes with titles, right? These, these greetings. So it would be rabbi, teacher, Master, Father, you know, people coming to them with this sort of deference. We don't really have that a whole lot in our world other than maybe doctor. You know, if, somebody's, if somebody is, if I was Dr. Wilder, you know, it'd be like, oh, he's a doctor. Oh, gotta take him seriously, you know? And I'm not, I don't presume anybody in here is a doctor or that if you were, that you um, insist that other people call you doctor. But if, if you've met someone like that, you might wonder, hmm, do you really just like need people to, you know, stroke your ego or whatever. So there's, there's the titles. And then the other thing that he talks about in there is the, these seats at feast, seats of honor. That we kind of don't really have in our world either. But just so you know, you know, a little fancy fact to tell your friends. But uh, in their world, if you wanted, you know, if you're trying to elevate your honor, what you would do is you would invite one of these people to say your wedding, you know. If you say, I'm trying to think of a good non-controversial celebrity that you would want to be at your event, right? So let's just say Tom Hanks. Everybody loves Tom Hanks, right? Okay. I know Tom Hanks. He's my, he's my thrice-removed great-uncle or whatever. And I'm getting married. So Tom Hanks is coming to my wedding. You wouldn't be like, okay, Tom, uh, could you just wear like a hijab or something? Like, just wear something so people don't know you're here. No, 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 no. You want Tom up there with you. You want everybody to know that Tom came to my, my wedding right? That's the kind of thing, like, they're, they're wanting to be in that place where people are like, roll out the red carpet, like, let's give you the special treatment. That's what they're after. 
That's what they're after, that desire for deference. The other thing notice in here, there was one other thing that isn't so much deference, but the abuse of privilege, devouring widows' houses. What's that all about? Yikes, that sounds terrible. Well, there's, there's debate on that. I mean, wh- one thing could be they, they would kind of insist uh, to say a widow, hey, you own some property and, you know, you're not really giving a whole lot to the offering boxes. You could sell, you know, you could sell that and really honor the, it's not the church back then, but you could honor the religious establishment. That's one school of thought. Another one is that these, um, the Sadducees were like salaried professionals, but some of these Pharisees and scribes were not. They were lay leaders. They didn't, they didn't pull a salary doing what they were doing. And, but they got so much honor from people that they could then honor someone else with their presence in their home, right? And they, they would choose to honor those who were poor by their presence, and then the poor have to like show them hospitality and basically give all their money to keep them afloat, rather than going to the rich because they're already buddy-buddy with them, right? So either way, be that as it may, however it is that this was happening, uh, they were unjustly extracting the resources of the poor and getting them into the hands of the rich. You know, we, the, I, I don't know if any of us are really doing that, but if you think about some of the systems that we have in place, some of the, some of the things that we have that actually are designed to do that, right? The, the lottery system, for example. There aren't a whole lot of wealthy people who are playing the lottery these days. It's only poor people. And if you go, I, I work a lot with drug addicts. I, I go down, I preach at Union Gospel Mission once a month. And I can tell you, it's not often that you have wealthy people going in there addicted to substances. Because when you're poor and your life really sucks, you want a break. And the way you get a break is by trying on a substance. It takes a little bit of your money. And then they get you hooked on it and it ends up taking all your money. And so all your resources end up getting funneled out of the hands of the poor and into the hands of the rich. Another way in which this, does, this happens systematically, I realize this just because I, uh, we bought a car to fit our growing family. And, you know, the DMV upped the charge for registering a new vehicle. There's like this extra $250 charge in there. Do you know how that works in society? The well-to-do people buy a good, well-working vehicle that's been well-maintained, and then they have the resources to maintain it so they don't buy another one. But you know what you do if you're poor? You buy a $500 car that lasts you six months because you can't afford to maintain it. It's already a piece of junk. And then it breaks down and you buy another one. So you're actually getting taxed every time, you, and like it's not necessarily your fault. You just can't afford to actually get a, a decent vehicle. So this is what I mean by there's these systems that are in place that actually funnel money up to the, to the well-to-do. I'm not saying anybody here is doing that, but that's what was going on there. They were personally and systematically doing that. And even as I'm describing those things, I hope you do get a little sense of like, that's not right. <laughs> we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, so anyways, that's what they're doing. The abuse of privilege, the desire for deference, that's what they're engaging in. F on their report card. F on their report card. Let's move on to the woman. So she comes in, and she's got two, uh, two copper coins, it says, that, that make a penny. This is interesting. So a widow comes in, and she goes, hey, 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 guys, check this out. This lady, see what she just put in there? More than anybody here. 
more than anybody here. Now, they wouldn't have thought that necessarily. The way that it worked back then, you know, nowadays, you can give on your phone or whatever. So if you're given like 10 cents, no one has to know. If you're given $10 million, nobody has to know. But back then, wealth was in coinage. So they'd have the box, and if you were a wealthy person, you could be like, you know. And everybody else is like, who's that? They're putting out a lot of money, right? <laughs> and so this lady comes in, and she's like, tinkle, 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 tinkle. And people would be like, are you for real? That's it? You know, that is the, like, that's what actually happened right? That's what actually happened. And so we, like, when we see Jesus, we're, we're so sentimental about it. We're like, yeah, Jesus is so right, because it's the heart that really matters. And we say that because it's in the Bible and because of the situation, but nobody actually believes, you guys don't believe this in reality, right? Uh, if you let somebody, if you gave somebody $10,000 and they, were, they gave you two pennies back and they're like, sorry, it's all I have, you wouldn't be like, oh, well, thank you. You gave everything you have. Thank you. You know, the bank doesn't do that if, you, if you, you go to pay on your mortgage and you're like, yeah, I gave you two cents, but it's all I got. They wouldn't be like, oh, you know what? You gave everything. Wow, good for you. They'd be like, okay, we're repossessing your house. Thank you. You know, that like, <laughs> so let's not get too sappy and sentimental about this like we're already on Jesus' side. We really aren't. We really aren't, honestly. So the thing to note about the woman is she's a widow. We know she's a widow. And in their world, a widow is very different from, from our world. You know, to, uh, nowadays, uh, when a, a woman's husband dies, she gets his social security. And there's, there's, she can still work. Like, we live in a world where women are not, not like they were then. Women are literate. Women can get jobs. You can, there's a lot of stuff out there. Not for them. A, a, a woman who's a widow is probably illiterate, probably doesn't have a job, probably doesn't have skills to get a job. She is in danger. She is in danger of falling through the cracks. And very often a widow also had children. So imagine that. It's a single mom who can't get a job and is illiterate. That's a vulnerable place to be in, right? And this is why in the Old Testament they had, a, there, there was a law that if a man's, if, if a if my brother were to die, I was supposed to marry his widow as a sort of security for her. It wasn't to, to espouse um, polygamy, but to protect the woman. So that's all gone. So if you're thinking about doing that, if you have a, you know, a sibling with a, uh, who dies, don't, don't think about it. The Bible's not commanding you to do that, okay? Just want to make sure that's clear. <laughs> Just want to make sure we're clear on that. So, but she is, um, she's poor, she's vulnerable, She's poor and she's vulnerable. She gives a penny, it says. Two copper coins that, that make a penny. This was, um, this was the, the smallest denomination of coinage you could possibly get. And the truth is that this act is an embarrassment for her. It's calling attention to her poverty, to her condition. If she were concerned about the glory that comes from others, she would have stayed home. Hid away those two pennies. Because it's frankly embarrassing how little contribution she's making. You know, if, you, if you knew somebody just put 10 cents in here, you'd be like, well, thank you. I guess the lights can be on for two more seconds. It's embarrassingly insignificant how much she is giving. It's enough for people to moan and slander her. 
Nevertheless, she does it. Why? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Because she wants to give. She wants to. Another thing to note about this is it's two, two coins. A commentator pointed this out, so I just want to, I don't remember who, but I didn't come up with this, okay? I'm not that clever. Two coins. What that means is that she could have kept one. She could have kept one for herself. Even though they're the smallest, most insignificant one, she still could have kept one of those. And she didn't. She put both of them in. What Jesus says is all that she had to live on. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if any of you guys are into literature, so this illustration may just fall to the ground. I don't know. I don't care, though. Uh, well, I do care, but never mind. I'm just talking to myself now. Uh, there's, a, there's a short story I read a long time ago by Leo Tolstoy. It's called Father Sergius. It's about a monk who, um, who gave himself to God and, and was able to do miraculous things. He became extraordinarily popular. People wanted to come from all over the world to visit him, to hear his wisdom, to be healed by him. And so he was like, you know what, to be truly godly, I need to get out of this racket, so I'm going to go in the desert. So he's out in the desert, a hermit living in a little shack, and then people would still come out there to, to get his wisdom or whatever. And then a woman comes, and she's like, I'm going to bring this guy down. I'm going to be the temptress who brings him down. And he slices his finger off to, to not give in to temptation with an axe. And when she sees what he's done, that he's chopped his finger off to keep from falling into temptation, she like gives up the game, gives up the game and goes and becomes a nun. So he's seen all these extraordinary things happen through God. And then he takes, he, he, on one of his trips where he's leaving, he ends up staying with a, a widow with kids. A widow with kids. And as he watches her struggle to make it one day at a time, he says, I have come to realize that I was serving myself under the pretense of serving God. And she's been serving God under the pretense of serving herself. It's that kind of thing, the heart. What's, what's really going on in the heart? What's really going on? You notice that Jesus sees this. Somehow Jesus penetrates into people's hearts, right? Remember the, there was one occasion where they bring a paralyzed guy to Jesus, and he turns around to the Pharisees and says, you're thinking this, and they're like, yep. <laughs> you know, he somehow can see into people's hearts. Why? Well, uh, one reason could be he's really lucky, He's really lucky. He knows it. It could be that he doesn't actually see into their hearts and he's just playing some kind of game. Or it could be maybe he's the second person in the Trinity. <laughs> maybe he's what Christians have said he is. Maybe he's actually God. But either way, Jesus sees, Jesus sees what's going on in their hearts and what's going on in the woman's heart and he sees what's going on in our hearts. And just to scare you, just to freak you out a little bit, Jesus knows when you're complimenting someone else so you can build up your rapport with them. And Jesus knows when you tell that story about yourself, you're not doing it for someone else's benefit, but for your own. He sees our hearts. He sees our motives. He sees what's really going on deep down, better than even we do. I don't think there's a single thing that we ever do on this planet, really, that's from a pure motive. <laughs> there's, some, there's some angle that we're working, at least subtly. Jesus sees it all. 
But this woman, he sees that her paltry gift that's an embarrassment to her does not bring her any honor, brings her the opposite of honor. She could have saved face and left the coins at home and left the humiliation. But rather she gives what nobody else will. She gives everything. And she gives not for the purpose of other people seeing and giving her accolades, but she gives solely to honor God. And what does Jesus give her? She gets from him the only thing that the others don't get. Honor from him. Glory from the only true God that Jesus was talking about back there in John chapter 5. So, here we go. Now, now we get to the point where uh, we talk about application, you and me. Okay, all right, let's get into it then. Let's keep going with this report card metaphor. You guys know what I'm talking about when I talk about a report card, right? When you were in grade school and you had to bring a report card home, and sometimes you dreaded it, you had to bring it to your parents. Report card is the thing that your teacher in school writes a report on how well you're doing, how well you're progressing. It's, it's the gavel, it's the judge's gavel, doggone it, you know, in your second grade. For me, it was like D-Day. If I'm not doing well, I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna get it, oh God please. So here's the question. Who or what are you looking to for your report card? What people? What institution? Are you in school and you're wanting to please the institution or get to the top of your class? Is it your peers? You just want to fit in with the people around you? You don't want to get in somebody's bad graces? Is it your family? Maybe you're coming from a more traditional culture and you, you really don't want to let your parents down. Who are you looking to for your report card? It could be your spouse, your potential spouse. If, I, if I'm not, however, maybe he or she won't like me, won't want to get together with me, won't want to make it happen. Who are you looking to? For them, it was glory from one another. Who, who is it that you're looking to to give you that report card? Second question, what kind of things are expected on that report card? How will you be evaluated to say your life mattered? You're an important person. How will you be evaluated? If it's, if it's your work, is it are you're moving enough units? You made enough sales? You got enough people to write on the dotted line? Or I came from a manufacturing background. You were able to produce such and so many goods in a day. Whatever it happens to be. How are you evaluated? You, were, you finally got married. You finally had kids and pleased your parents. Or you finally got a real job. Or you got to move into that zip code that you really wanted to live in because you want to be around those kinds of people because their report card is the one that you're after. Whose report card? What kind of things are you looking for? Third question, uh, how will you feel or how will you be treated if you fail those masters. Jesus calls them masters, by the way. He says you can't serve two masters. Whoever it is you're looking to for, uh, to give you that stamp of approval, to say you're okay, that's your master. That's what Jesus teaches. 
How do they treat you if you don't make it? Tough question. I can tell you, by the way, that as a pastor, you don't get out of this. It's not like, you know, if you suddenly uh, get on staff at a church, you're like, hey, uh, I'm not looking for a report card from anybody anymore. I'm just fine, you know. That's not how it works. Pastors are, are tempted to say things that will get more people to come. Try and grow your church. Try and get a, a, a well-known celebrity pastor to come in so you can bridge your associations with them. Build out your resume. Maybe not even that. Maybe I just want to have a successful ministry. You know, pastors, we don't get out. Like, we care about what you guys think of us. We struggle with that. This is real. I'm not, I'm not excluding myself from this, okay? Just so you guys know. I'm not saying that to soften it on you. I'm just trying to say I'm with you in it, okay? Okay. What is Jesus looking for? What if Jesus was the one writing your report card? What is it that he's looking for? What if we actually said, you know, the only report card that really matters is the one that Jesus writes? What would he be looking for? Now, if from this, from this story, you might say, well, he's really looking for, you know, vulnerability, honesty, generosity, sacrifice maybe from the, you know, from the woman and the, and the Pharisees. That might be what you say. And we would be right, right? You'd be right if you thought that. You would be right. The interesting thing about the gospel, one of the things I love about the gospel is this. Nobody gets any advantages, right? Because here's what Jesus is after on that report card. Everything. Remember, the, the woman doesn't just give two pennies. She's not just like sacrificial. So you can't be like, well, I only make like $45,000 a year, so I can only afford to give this much. This is like the last two pennies in the bank. And for her, it's not just the last two pennies in the bank, it's everything else, right? All that she had. How are we doing with that? Everything you have. I got money in the bank. You know, I got, I'm holding back. I'm not going to lie. Everything that you have. Man, Jesus is mean. He lays into the Pharisees, and then his expectation is all that you ever have. Well, here's the truth. Jesus is going to the cross. He's on his way to the cross because he knows that you cannot give everything that you have. And neither can I. Because he knows that you and I are still right there in the place we started. We're in that place of vulnerability where we are desperate to be approved of by someone else. We're, we're, we know we're weak. We know there's something missing. We know that we need help. We need someone. We need something. We need him. And so he goes to the cross and he takes your F report card and he nails it to it and he takes his A report card and he gives it to you and to me. That's the gospel. If you're rich, you can give everything. If you're poor, you can give everything. It's not like if you're much better, at, if you're more disciplined person so you can keep more of the rules, then you have the advantage. And if you're more of a free and footloose artsy type, then, oh man, that sucks for you because you're not going to be able to keep the rules because you just don't naturally bend that way. No. If the cost is everything, everybody fails, right? And if Jesus goes to the cross for everybody, then everybody can win. But you got to play by his rules, which means you stay in that place of vulnerability where you're like, Jesus, <laughs> this is what's awesome about the gospel, right? It's okay to be a loser. Hooray, I'm a loser. All right, we all are. 
Like, it's okay to just be the sinner that you are. And Jesus is like, I love you when you're a sinner, when you didn't care about me, when you were running the other way from me. And now that you actually try, that you actually care, you actually want, his love doesn't diminish for you. It's the same. It's the same. Jesus looked into your heart, and he says, in spite of all that's going on in there, right? Because Jesus sees all those mixed motives. In spite of all of that, I will go to the cross for you so that you can have the right report card. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did do. Jesus knows what it's like to be that despised, humiliated woman who sacrifices everything. In fact, even more so. Because he was nailed up naked to a couple pieces of wood in front of the whole world. After all his friends left him. Talk about vulnerability. We haven't even, I mean, we talk about it a lot in our culture. Like, we barely, like, dipped our foot in the pool when we admit that we're sinners. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Praise Jesus. Why would you not want to, to, to take this deal of getting that report card from him? Why would you not want it? So if you don't know, if you don't know Jesus, if you're here, I don't know all you guys. Come to Jesus. If you're wondering, like, what do I do? What do I do with this? Like, this sounds great. I'd like to know what to do. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Take that feeling that you have inside of you right now and open your heart to Jesus and just say, whatever this preacher guy is talking about, I want that. I want that. I'm tired of working for my report card from somebody else who will give me an F as soon as I'm no longer looking 25, you know, when I don't have hair anymore or whatever. Come to Jesus. Open your heart to him. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know what? You know what's great about that? You can still come to Jesus and open your heart to him and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I have been seeking after someone else's report card rather than yours. I've fallen into that, like, finding a system that makes me feel safe instead of remaining in that place of weakness, of darkness, of doing what you said, Jesus, which was unless you give up on yourself, embrace your cross. Whoever seeks to have his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 